0: Ross Garneau is emeritus professor of economics at the University of Melbourne. In 2008, he produced the Garneau Climate Change Review for the Australian Government. He's the author of many books, including the best selling Dog Days, Superpower, and Reset. Today I'm talking to Ross Garneau about his latest book, The Superpower Transformation, Making Australia's Zero Carbon Future. Ross Garneau, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Good to be with you, Greg. The superpower transformation is immensely broad in the issues it addresses. It's dense, complex and factually rich and draws on the latest research in science, engineering and economics. But even with all that in mind, can I start with a very basic question. Who is this book for? Who would you like its critical message to reach?
1: I'd like the message to reach uh, uh, intelligent Australians who read and who participate in the discussion of where our country's going, its place in the world, and how it influences the world. Uh, I've done a number of uh, books on this topic. Uh, They've been widely read uh, and um, uh, have influenced uh, discussion. Superpower, the book I published three years ago, uh, the title of the book entered the the public discussion in, in ways in which allow its origins to be forgotten, and that's always a good thing. Uh, this is the sequel to Superpower. Uh, Superpower raised the idea of Australia having special advantages in the zero emissions economy. Uh, this book shows how we do it and what Australia will look like if we take advantage of the opportunity. And uh, I think it's of interest to uh, anyone who cares about the future of our country.
0: Hopefully that's everybody. I want to take you back to your 2021 book, Reset. You suggested that following the global pandemic, we could choose between the restoration of Australia or, as you put them, post-pandemic dog days. But in the superpower transformation, you write about the need for policy and action to contribute to the global effort to fight climate change. That suggests a leadership role for Australia.
1: Why is it in Australia's interests to take a leadership role? Well, first of all, it's in Australia's interest that the world succeeds in dealing with climate change, Uh Climate change, if it was left to itself, if we didn't deal with the problem, uh, would uh, uh, undermine the uh, political and economic basis of our civilization. Everything we've built over this last quarter of a millennium, humanity uh, is the we there. And we would be damaged more than any other developed country. We're very vulnerable to climate change. Australians are now increasingly uh, aware of that. Um, And Australia matters in the world. Australia might only account for one and a quarter percent of global emissions, uh, but uh, we've been rather pivotal in a lot of the international discussion with the Trump government's only ally um, in the developed democracies uh, in the years of Trump denial of climate change, and that was quite important in the American discussion. When there's a great contest of uh, ideas about policy going on in other countries, a country like Australia... Uh, makes a difference, whether it puts its uh, weight behind uh, uh, one side or the other. For a long time, we put our weight on the side of opposition to action on climate change, and we made a difference. Put our weight on the other side, and we'll make a different sort of difference. It could make all the difference. Especially important that we do it, not only because we're an influential uh, middle power uh, respected in some parts of the world, But also because we, of all the countries of the world, have immense advantages economically in the zero emissions world. And uh, the the low cost way for the world to uh, remove emissions from steelmaking is to turn Australian iron ore into iron metal here in Australia uh, using renewable hydrogen rather than uh, uh, using coal in other countries. That's economically uh, the rational way of doing things in the zero carbon world. Australia benefits immensely from that, helping to create a world in which all those things happen naturally will make us richer, as well as saving our civilization from the destabilization from climate change.
0: And we'll look at some of those issues a bit later in the discussion. But. Firstly, I want to look at one of the obstacles, and clearly one of the obstacles to the superpower transformation is addressing the dominance and the power of fossil fuel providers. You write, take a bow, coal, oil and gas, but the fossil carbon age has to
1: end. Are we yet to build the necessary momentum to facilitate that shift? Uh, Well, there's a battle going on when you've got uh, interests uh, becoming very wealthy uh, from... uh... Uh, an established area of economic activity, they will invest quite a lot in resisting change. And we've had a lot of that in Australia. It's one of the important reasons why Australia has been on the side of inaction on climate change, why we've sat there with Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia and Trump America, uh, rather than our more natural allies, Biden, America, uh, Merkel's uh, Germany and progressive governments in uh, Japan and Korea undoubtedly the uh, political influence of the coal and gas industries have been very important in that they won't go away. But in our democracy, the public interest has a chance, a chance that it wouldn't have if we had a dictatorship uh, dominated by uh, coal and gas industries and uh, no doubt about community uh, support for strong action on climate change. And I think one of the reasons why the Liberal Party was smashed at the last election, including in its own heartland, uh, was that it, was, it got out of line with uh, community thinking, including community thinking of the sorts of people who used to be the strong supporters of the Liberal Party. So there is a battle between the vested interests and democratic interests. So far in Australia, when we've had these battles, it's never been easy, but uh, democracy done all right.
0: Now, Australia has built much of its wealth on our resources, including coal and gas. And uh, as you put it, is there a national interest trade-off with prosperity from gas and coal as we move into this new era?
1: Um, that, that's a complicated issue, and certainly we have done very well out of the coal and gas era. And I say in the book and uh, that uh, coal and gas and oil, and the people who work in it, have been very important in the emergence of the of modern civilization, Uh, I say that uh, humanity's ascent from ignorance and poverty wouldn't have happened without it. But uh, it's got to end. It's got to end because we now understand the impact on climate. It's got to end because uh, high-quality resources of those kinds are scarce, and those resources become more and more expensive if you don't move away from them. They could only be temporary sources of wealth now, Uh, They're not sustainable sources of wealth. There won't be much coal or gas production by the middle of this century. That's half a lifetime away. We've got to adjust to that reality. In a well-functioning democracy, we'd be taxing those reasonably, uh, getting benefits from that. uh, uh, But uh, we'd be recognizing clearly that this is a transitional benefit. It'll all be over. In a few decades, we shouldn't be investing in uh, keeping it beyond that. The national economic interest ends up being consistent with our interest in dealing with climate change. Uh, If we care about the future, we'll be putting all of the investment now into the new industries in which Australia can do very well in the zero-carbon world economy. A lot of those are mining industries. Uh, Mining will remain important. The world will use as much iron and steel uh, in the zero-carbon economy as now, but it'll just be processed in a different way. We'll, we'll use, the world will use more copper and aluminium, big Australian exports. You need a hell of a lot of uh, copper and aluminium in, a, in an electric car or a transmission line for uh, renewable energy. Um, there's a whole lot of new minerals uh, uh, for, that are important in the uh, energy transition industries. Uh, that uh, Australia has rich resources in, so mining will stay very important. We'll have a, we'll have a, another set of uh, very big, important industries based on our natural resources, based on our wind and solar resources, uh, generating energy to, for for, um, for processing uh, metals and other industries. So, so uh, there's a full consistency uh, between uh, making good use of the new opportunities. Uh, and it and our economic prosperity not just future prosperity starting now uh, we can take benefits from some employment declining over time uh, and uh, and government revenue uh, from uh, coal and gas while it lasts uh, but uh, our economic interest is served by recognizing very clearly that it won't last long Through
0: this economic opportunity that you're proposing, are we really talking about a complete restructuring of the Australian economy in order to make the best of that opportunity?
1: Yes, we are, uh, to to make full use of it. Uh, In fact, it will be the main area of investment in in the export and import competing industries uh, uh, for the next generation, if we make good use of the opportunity. But it's the sort of restructuring we've done before. Go back to the beginning of my lifetime, uh, middle of last century. Uh, agriculture re- represented most of our exports, um, wool and grains and other agricultural products um, amongst the trade exposed industries. But overwhelmingly, the biggest employer was manufacturing. Well, in the last generation, especially through the China resources boom, From early this century uh, till about 2014, uh, the dominant position of agriculture was completely uh, put aside by the growth of the mining exports. We restructured the economy to supply China with the minerals it needed for rapid development. What we're talking about is, uh, in terms of annual investment, annual change, something like we put into restructuring Australia to serve the Chinese demand for minerals so during the China resources boom. We're looking at something about of that magnitude, but not lasting for a decade and a half, but lasting for three or four decades. So it is very large, uh, and uh, that requires um, uh, positive attitudes by governments at all levels, it requires lots of uh, training uh, and uh, education. Uh, Yes, it's a big restructuring, uh, but of a kind we've managed in the past.
0: On that very point, do we have the regulatory and business institutions uh, equipped well enough to manage this change?
1: Uh, Not at this stage. Uh, uh, We we need substantial strengthening uh, of uh, planning mechanisms, uh, regulatory mechanisms at Commonwealth and state and local government level. We will do that once we recognize the scale of what has to be done. Our business institutions at the moment are dominated by uh, companies that are are used to doing well without taking a risk. Australia is a bit unusual in the developed world for that. Uh, uh, We don't have many real uh, entrepreneurial companies that are able to recognize a a new opportunity and back it. Uh, In the case of uh, the established miners, um, Technically, they're very good, but uh, the quality of our resources are such that uh, rates of return on investment are huge. The risk of losses are very small. And outside the mining sector uh, and, and, and farming, uh, our large institutions uh, uh, look for monopolies or olig- oligopolies or protection from government regulation in ways that take away the need for risk. Uh, uh, we'll do best in this new field if... Uh, if we've got a much more uh, entrepreneurial corporate sector, more like those of Europe or uh, America, we can do it. Uh, we've been parts of, uh, part of our history, including in the reform era from 83 uh, onwards for a couple of decades, where we had a great efflorescence of uh, service and manufactured exports. Uh, uh, but we have to get away from a protectionist, uh, regulated mindset. And uh, some of our great financial institutions have to get away from... Being building societies, in the case of the banks, or rent seekers like our superannuation funds, into uh, being real business people. I think there's a powerful message in that
0: just in itself. But let's move to the thing that really underpins this transformation, which is renewable energy. As Australians, we all know we have plenty of sunshine with which to produce renewable energy. But that in itself doesn't seem to be enough to convince people that renewable energy is the way forward. So why is or why else is Australia at a comparative advantage to other nations when it comes to the production of renewable
1: energy? In the book, I point out five big advantages that we've got. Uh, one is we've got the best combinations of uh, solar and wind uh, relative to our economic size and population of any of any country. Our near competitors are mainly developing countries, and uh, developed countries have a big advantage in this space because. renewable energy and storage of renewable energy are very capital intensive. So the cost of capital is uh, the main determinant of costs other than the natural resources themselves. In developed countries, the cost of capital is lower than than in the riskier uh, developing countries. So that sort of doubles our advantage in renewable energy. That should give us the lowest cost energy in the in the zero emissions world that's an advantage in itself for our standard of living but it also gives us um, advantages in using energy and manufacturing activities especially energy intensive processing of our raw materials and and this can be huge Uh, at the moment most of our minerals are just sent overseas in unprocessed states in the case of two of our biggest export industries, iron ore and, and uh, metallurgical coal, we export both and to the same place and they're turned into uh, metal uh, in uh, China or Japan or Korea. Uh, and uh, uh, that's been a source of considerable prosperity. Uh, and it's been economically natural, because it doesn't cost any more to, to uh, ship uh, coal from Mackay in Queensland to Kobe in the steel mills of Japan. That, in fact, it costs costs less than to ship it around to Wyala in South Australia because our coastal shipping is pretty expensive. Uh, well, it's not going to be like that with, in the zero emissions world. In the zero emissions world, um, uh, iron will be processed into metal. Iron ore will be processed into metal by zero emissions hydrogen. That requires huge amounts of energy. It has to be renewable energy in a zero emissions world. That will be much cheaper in Australia. And we won't be exporting... Australian zero emissions hydrogen uh, to uh, process Australian iron ore or copper or aluminium or silicon in uh, Japan and Korea uh, uh, or or China or Germany for that matter, because the hydrogen uh, will cost more than twice as much in the importing country as here. It's not like coal where it doesn't cost any more there as here. So we'll have a huge advantage in local uh, processing. So, uh, so the second part of our advantage in the zero emissions world is we're the world's biggest exporter of the things that need a lot of energy for processing, iron, aluminium, uh, copper, nickel, uh, silicon, etc. Third big advantage is that um, we've got a uh, huge uh, uh, opportunity uh, to build up uh, the stock of carbon in plants and soils. Uh, which is of high value, absorbing carbon in the zero emissions world. High value, whether you leave it there, is just simply an increase in the carbon stock or uh, whether you harvest it sustainably uh, as a base for industries which need uh, uh, carbon or hydrocarbon for plastics, uh, other uh, chemical manufacturers and so on. In the high carbon world, they're, they're made from coal or gas or oil, They won't be made from coal or gas or oil in the zero emissions world. They'll be made from biomass and will be a very competitive uh, source of uh, of, of biomass. So that and carbon credits from our abundance of land relative to population uh, will be a uh, huge advantage. Uh, A fourth advantage is uh, a lot of the skills that we've built uh, for the uh, old mining, agricultural, forestry industries are very valuable skills in the new industries. And that will give us a, a good start. And some of the infrastructure for, for the old industries, uh, like the ports for the minerals, uh, the transmission lines that used to take the power from the coal fields to uh, the, the cities. A lot of that infrastructure is valuable in the in the zero emissions uh, world economy. Just yesterday, uh, Premier of Queensland made a very important announcement on the future of Queensland, the future of energy in Queensland, uh, seeing uh, North Queensland and Central Queensland, uh, that uh, uh, region from um, Townsville to Gladstone and going inland uh, as a global superpower in the zero emissions economy. Part of that strength will be building on the the skills and the uh, the infrastructure that was put there for the... For the old economy so these are immense advantages in the zero emissions uh, economy
0: let's talk about hydrogen and more importantly green hydrogen and uh, frank jotso in one of your chapters says that hydrogen is an essential building block in the transition to a net zero emissions world economy so clearly there are fundamental advantages of hydrogen and it has wide uses but not all hydrogen is the same uh, as you say there's blue gray black and brown hydrogen they all have high emissions. What we really need to achieve for a net zero emissions economy is green
1: hydrogen. Is large-scale green hydrogen production still a distant reality? No, it's ready now. One has to think very clearly about uh, what will be its most valuable uses. Uh, hydrogen can be used for many things. You can put it in a car. is building cars to run electrical engines from hydrogen. It can be used in... Uh, uh, to to power a, a thermal generator, a peaking power instead of uh, of natural gas, uh, it, it can be used uh, because of its chemical properties to replace carbon in reduction of metals. Uh, for example, reduction of iron ore into uh, iron or uh, uh, silicon oxide into uh, pure silicon traditionally we've used carbon from coal to uh, serve those purposes the carbon pulls the oxygen atoms out of the iron oxide or silicon oxide and leaves the metal well hydrogen can do that and the difference between using hydrogen and using carbon is if you use if you use the coal uh, then the uh, waste is carbon dioxide a greenhouse gas if you use hydrogen the waste is water uh, which uh, in the right quantities doesn't do anyone any harm uh, so it uh, got a wide range of uses, uh, and uh, uh, some uses are economic now. Right now, at the price of metallurgical coal now, uh, we can produce um, hydrogen in Australia uh, at a price that uh, w- w- is substantially below the, the cost of reducing iron ore into iron using metallurgical coal. Now, no one expects these the very high prices after the Russian invasion of Ukraine to last forever, but they can come down a fair way and uh, hydrogen's competitive. Uh, Now, it won't be like that everywhere in the world. Uh, In Europe, they're most advanced in thinking about the conversion from uh, use of coal to use of hydrogen in iron making, but renewable energy is the main cost of uh, green hydrogen. That's, That's expensive in Europe. Uh, so international trade in Australia playing a role is going to be important to other countries making the adjustment. But right here in Australia, uh, th- there are opportunities now. It requires new knowledge, new skills, changes in mindset. Uh, needs changes from thinking of Australia as uh, Japan or China or Korea's quarry uh, to thinking of us as uh, a-, a producer of uh, processed goods. It requires big changes uh, but the economics are there to start the change now.
0: According to Li Gang Song in chapter six of your book, China accounted for 53% of global steel production in 2019 and an estimated 60% of global steel emissions. So this makes China a significant producer of carbon emissions from steel production alone. And uh, Li Gang goes on to say that the challenge of decarbonisation in this industry is huge. For Australia to be a superpower in this area, uh, there will need to be a great deal of cooperation between China and Australia. What level of cooperation is required to make this work?
1: Certainly, Li Gung's right that it will be much more likely that China will be able to make the transition to zero emissions in steel if it relies a lot on uh, importing Australian iron rather than iron oxide, iron metal rather than iron ore. Uh, and... Relations have been difficult, poor between Australia and China, not a lot of trust at the moment. But despite that, we're supplying well, that huge steel industry of China, 53% of uh, the, the world's steel production, and we're, most of the uh, iron ore for that comes from Australia. <laughs> uh, that, that's all going on. Uh, good business relations are very important for the Australian economy, very important for the Chinese economy, at what's the most difficult time in bilateral relations uh, uh, since diplomatic relations were established 50 years ago. It was a very big uh, step for China to accept reliance on imported iron ore. I was ambassador to China in the 80s when we got that going, Uh, and I saw one of my key jobs as uh, ambassador was to... Talk to the leadership of China, uh, leadership of Chinese industry as well, uh, about the advantages to China of relying on high-quality Australian ores and uh, the shift from autarky, the old Chinese approach. They used used to in the early eighties, um, uh, nearly all, overwhelmingly Chinese uh, iron ore uh, for into Chinese steel mills was produced from from China. It was very low grade. It meant they didn't get as good a production out of their steel mills as otherwise. And the shift from autarky uh, uh, faced great resistance. People in the national security uh, apparatus said, how can China be reliant for such a basic material on imports from uh, a capitalist country? Uh, and uh, other people said we've got so many jobs in the iron ore industry, uh, what will all those people do if we become reliant on imports? But the economic advantages to both countries were so big from China using high quality Australian ore that we, that they did it and we did it. And the shift from reliance on iron ore imports to reliance on iron metal is a much smaller shift than the shift from autarky to reliance on iron ore. So. So it does require trust in two countries. Uh, We've continued to have that at a business level, even though we haven't had it at an intergovernmental level. Uh, I'm hoping that that we'll see better relations at a political level in future. But let's uh, keep in mind that the sort of uh, relations we need for the iron metal trade has been maintained for the iron ore trade even through this uh, difficult period in Sino-Australian relations.
0: Let's move on to electric vehicles and transport and also the critical minerals and the mineral processing required to make that a reality. So electric vehicles and the general electrification of transport is a huge part of the decarbonisation of the economy, but the demand for rare earth minerals such as lithium cobalt, manganese, along with others, including copper, aluminium and nickel. Uh, the demand for those is going to be immense if we achieve that goal. How can we possibly achieve large-scale electrification without increasing emissions in the process, putting immense pressure on our electricity production and our grid, and along with that, manage the demand as well as production, processing and environmental costs of these minerals? Well,
1: a number of different questions there. We We can produce them and process them with zero emissions in the same way as we can do everything else with zero emissions by using uh, renewable energy and storage and uh, uh, curtailment of demand when uh, when the grid's under stress. Uh, so that's not going to be a, a particularly important issue. Um, as with many minerals, um, there's pl- plenty of all of those things. Uh, It's just not plenty of them in high concentrations in convenient locations. Uh, We'll get them at some cost, uh, uh, and the huge increase in demand means that prices will have to be high enough to make it worthwhile to go to out-of-the-way places, difficult locations, uh, make it worthwhile to process, in some cases, lower-grade ores uh, to get the quantities that we want, and that will mean high prices, the high prices that will provide the incentives. Australia, in, in the, these new minerals, uh, as in the old ones, uh, like iron ore and coal, has uh, uh, much more than its share of, uh, uh, of resources. We are naturally the home of uh, production of a high proportion of, of, of the world for many of these products, and, and, and these industries will grow. Some of them uh, give value to uh, uh, resources that we've, we've treated as waste in the past. Uh, uh cobalt is in very scarce supply it's needed in batteries into a lot of electrical equipment um, by far the world's major so- source at the moment is um, the congo uh, and uh, uh, lots of questions raised about the conditions of, of work for people in industries there lots of worries on human rights grounds of using that well we've got enough uh cobalt in the waste of uh, copper mining in Mount Isa Mines, waste dumps and in other places to keep Australia going for longer than we'll ever need to, to, to go. And so, uh, so so one of the things that will happen is it will process our waste.
0: Something that runs parallel to all of these ideas is sequestering carbon and growing biomass and Isabel Grant's chapter explores the potential for sequestering carbon in Australian soils using native plants along with exotic species. So what are the natural climate solutions? That's the term she uses. What solutions
1: are on offer for sequestering carbon in Australian soils? There's a lot of effort currently being put into developing technologies that uh, can take carbon out of the atmosphere, reduce the carbon concentration. Well, there's an old technology with a proven track record. It's a track record of over 2 billion years. Photosynthesis, yeah. <laughs> Trees and seaweed and algae. And, uh, this planet started with a carbonic atmosphere. Lots of carbon dioxide, hot as Hades. All of those plants and algae got to work over hundreds of millions of years and... Uh, took the carbon dioxide out of the air, turned the carbon into a plant material, then buried it in the earth. Some of it we dig up now and burn it as coal or oil or gas. Others stayed there. And they converted that carbonic atmosphere into the oxygen-rich atmosphere that we can... Breathe that makes our sort of life possible. So so it's got a track record. Now, there are other exotic ways of taking mechanically carbon dioxide out of the air and sequestering it. Some of those things will probably have a place, but the big one is photosynthesis. And uh, Australia has 10 times as much woodland per head of population as the developed countries as a whole. The developed countries have three times as much as developing countries. But we also love to cut down our trees. Yeah, but uh, we, we, we've got to get used to uh, nurturing them, restoring uh, our vegetation. There's a lot more carbon in soils than there is in the atmosphere. And the way we've cultivated land, the way we've developed our farming and agricultural industries in Australia has sent a lot of that carbon in the soil back into the atmosphere and and that's damaged the soils. Well, in the last generation, Australian farmers have focused much more on restorative farming. So there's a fair bit of that starting to go on anyway. Uh, We don't want to use good farming land that produces valuable food, much needed in the world for uh, sequestering. Carbon, where it doesn't make sense, but there are parts even of the properties in good farmland that can be used for uh, for growing more trees. But most importantly, uh, in the in the woodlands beyond the agricultural areas, there are immense advantages, and uh, a lot of Australian species uh, are very well adapted to our hot and variable climate. Uh, can can do well uh, with with the right sort of nurturing. That's going to be a big focus of uh, Australian effort in the zero carbon economy.
0: The opening chapter of your book begins with a rather poetic evocation of the countryside around Alice River near Barcladeen on the road to Baku. It's beautiful there, as you suggest, but there's something important happening in Barcladeen. The Barcladeen Renewable Energy Zone is put forward as a model of what could be replicated across the country. What conversion of resources, market and economic opportunities does the Barcaldine Renewable Energy Zone present that might make it a model system?
1: Yeah, well, it's got very good sunshine. It's on the Tropic of Capricorn, and uh, that's about as good a solar resource as you get in the world. If you go further north... Even, even just to Mount Isa, you start to get more summer cloud. Uh, probably tropical Capricorn. Get away from both coasts. Go from Mount Tom Price in Western Australia through Alice Springs to somewhere near Barkalden or elfer in Queensland. Uh, that's as good a solar country as you get. Uh, so wonderful solar resource. Um, you, you're just to the uh, uh, west of the Great Dividing Range and uh, the rises uh, above the plains give you very good uh, wind resources. You also got pretty good transport connections, um, north, south, east, west, uh, railways. Uh, it's on the main railway from Rockhampton and the crossroads of uh, highways. It's the um, uh, best solar resource connected to the national electricity market by a reasonably scaled uh, transmission line. So that's why. Uh, a bit of focus has been there but they're the same sort of resources you've got a lot of in a lot of places in australia and australia is going to be producing a lot of things in those decentralized rural locations uh, a, a lot of industries will be able to use the high quality low-cost uh, local renewable energy resources to process local resources or or local requirements for industry uh, For example, production of uh, fertilisers, nitrogenous fertilisers, you can make them with zero emissions from renewable energy or you can make them with high emissions from gas. The low emissions production is probably going to be done in future in Australia or at least production for the local uh, agricultural use in a number of decentralised locations uh, like Susanna discusses for uh, Barcould and uh, uh, and once you've got low-cost uh, energy and those and basic infrastructure, including water infrastructure, uh, then local initiatives and local resources will support a range of industries. So, back on just one case of what can be uh, multiple cases uh, uh, across Australia. The important point there uh, is the type of opportunity. Much of the superpower economies going to to uh, uh, reach its heights in rural and provincial Australia. Uh, And uh, that's just one of the places where there's a lot of discussion of this at the moment.
0: My final question, let's talk about climate change policy over the last decade, and there's been a lot of delaying and deflecting of action. It's interesting that you write, a democracy's quality is defined and national success determined by how it handles sectional pressures. Which prompts the question, is the quality of Australian democracy up to the task?
1: Well, you have to say, objectively, we've failed uh, for the past decade. We were fighting against our national interests uh, on this matter uh, from 2013 until recently. But I think it was the quality and strength of our democracy that got us back on track. Now, you don't correct the problems and errors of the last decade overnight, the vested interests that were created around those errors uh, remain powerful, uh, so it's a struggle. Uh, but uh, I, I think the outcome of the, the last election, uh, including the uh, character of the crossbench, uh, is a reflection that uh, Australian democracy on these issues is still in good heart. Ross Garno, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading podcast. Good to be with you,
0: Greg. I've been talking to Ross Garneau about his latest book, The Superpower Transformation, Making Australia's Zero-Carbon Future. It's published by La Trobe University Press, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.